Hello and welcome back to Cooking Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which takes us deeper into the best of the food books. This week I'm with James Beard, award-winning author Rowan Jacobson, whose book The Truffle Hound is a fabulous romp across the world in search of truffles. But it's much more than that. It's a story of daring do and great dogs, but it's also a love letter to truffles, which have so much to say to humanity about everything from the health of the environment to how to get more out of life. Who'd have thought that this wonderful little fruit, which lives in the shadows, could bring so much light to a world losing its way? You savour it, and you don't need to explain necessarily in, in any sort of logical way why it has an impression on you. You can just enjoy it for what it is. And I see dogs doing that with smells all the time. I began by asking Roan about his first sexual encounter with a truffle. I was in Barolo in, in Italy to give a talk and was meeting some of the other people who were involved at a, a beautiful r- restaurant that with an open-air deck looking out over the vineyards of Barolo. And I knew it was truffle season, but I, I wasn't really paying too much attention yet. But as I walked through the dining room on my way to the table outside where we were going to meet, I passed an just extraordinarily perfect truffle under a bell in the dining room, which is what they tend to do in Italy that time of year. They'll, they'll put a really just like a super sexy truffle out in the middle of the dining room. Um, and that bell happens to, it really traps those aromatics and intensifies them, I, I now realize. So I walked past it, and I just noticed it, and was thinking about this meeting I had to attend. But I, um, I sort of just lifted the glass for a sniff as I walked past. And as you do. it stopped everything. <laughs> yeah, as you do, right? Um, or as I do. And I, it just stopped me cold. And it, I had never smelled anything like that. As as you say, it's it was almost sexual, but just in that way that um, it's riveting, and whatever you're thinking about, you you stop and and you can't think about anything else except whatever that that just immediate emotional and you know drug like experience was that you just had. So then I had to turn around and sniff some more. I've been in the vicinity of truffle. I've been around the excitement of the chef as the black truffle arrives from Norcia. But I don't think I've ever smelt a truffle in the way that you described. You mentioned very early on the food philosopher Bria Severin wrote in 1825, whoever says truffle utters a grand word which awakens (laughs) erotic and gastronomic ideas. I love that idea. I mean, you say that you you was you were stopped cold actually it's quite the opposite isn't it you have been on fire in the writing of this book and kind of driven across the world to kind of have more and more of it was that the intention or was it just to really kind of dig deep to use a truffle metaphor to find the real story of it and i'm asking because you describe yourself as somebody who makes the connection between environment and food what was your intention in writing this book? Uh, yeah, great question, because it was really all of the above, I, I have to say. Partly, it was it was a visceral reaction, and I really, I just wanted more. And frankly, writing a book about it was one of the only ways I could really <laughs> come up with to get more. Uh, but, but I was also just fascinated on an intellectual level uh, and a maybe detective level by all the mysteries surrounding this food that has always had mysteries surrounding it. And it just seems to be part of the nature of the beast. Uh, These are organisms that love the shadows and the underground and don't like 
the the bright lights in a way they they like to operate um sort of quietly and mysteriously and subliminally um and they were certainly doing all of that on me and i think that's been a constant throughout thousands of years of this interaction between truffles and and people they uh they're alluring and that's part of their master plan is they want animals to have this sort of erotic reaction to them they do and why so uh, a truffle is um the fruiting body of a fungus so it's like a mushroom it's filled with spores and the goal is to reproduce to get those spores spread around the forest to make more fungus but a mushroom does that by popping above the surface opening up its parasol and letting wind spread the spores around but a truffle stays underground with those spores. So it has a big problem. How is it going to get those spores spread around the forest when it's stuck under the ground? And the brilliant plan that it's come up with is to make itself smell so irresistible to all these different types of animals that they will <laughs> lose their senses and feel compelled to dig, to get to the truffle, eat the truffle, and then spread the spores to the forest. So when, when we have this reaction to truffles, we're doing exactly what they want us to be It's doing. extraordinary. It's extraordinary. I have to say that one of the reasons I did pick up your book was because it is full of dogs. I'm a big dog fan. And you do tell this story of mad mm. dogs and Englishmen and American men and Hungarian men and Italian men <laughs> all spending a hell of a lot of time doing exactly what the truffle wants. I want to go through your four food moments because it is such a wonderful book and these food moments take us to all those different places. Can we go to Alba in Italy where you finally understand what all the fuss is about? Yeah, so in Al right outside of Alba is Barolo where I smelled that first truffle. And I had had some basic truffle, you know, restaurant experiences, the typical ones we've had uh, in the United States before that. But None of them had the intensity or the um, the arresting nature of this experience. And now I realize that's because either those were sort of secondary truffles or sometimes it was just a synthetic uh, flavoring that had no truffle in it at all. But so here here I was in Italy, in Alba, in the right, right season, which is basically now, October through now. Mm white truffles are all over the place and then alba is really the center of it but then all the the italian wine regions that surround alba are also a big part of that and uh word on the street is that this is where all of the white truffles come from is piemonte and and these other areas of northern italy uh, which i found out not to be the case but at that time i still was pretty much believing the uh the stories that they were telling as soon as I smelled that truffle, though, it was such a strong, um, the way it seemed to be taking over the emotional and memory parts of my brain and saying, like, remember me, think about me, don't forget me. Uh, it just felt like a very different thing than food tends to do to you. And that was where, for me, uh, I, I needed to understand that. I wanted to understand it scientifically and experientially and there's surprisingly little information out there it really um the french and the italians have done an incredibly good job for for a couple of centuries of 
building up truffles as this fantastic food, but they've done that by really making them one of the ultimate luxury products you can have, where you go into a, a fine dining restaurant and have a classic fine dining experience very carefully catered for you, where the waiter is shaving that truffle right at table onto your food. Um, it's it's an elegant experience, but it's a very sort of stiff and formal experience. And my reaction to the truffle was not at all stiff or formal. It made me want to get in the woods and start <laughs> digging in the dirt. Um, and when I started looking back through the literature, like you cited Briat Savarin, and um, everyone who's written about truffles for centuries has sort of hit on these same things, the way they have this Proustian effect on your, your memory and the way they... Um, they hit you more emotionally than than in the typical ways that a food might might hit you as just regular deliciousness. Yeah, it's it is so fascinating because that first food moment you describe that extraordinary sort of euphoria around the product. There's massive bartering as well. You go out with the dealers. You you get under the skin of of the actual product you're weighing it, you're understanding its value. And as you do so, you're revealing the, the the work behind it. There's an industry and you do tell that story, but it's very much about working class men. Uh, and we know that Italy has a massive unemployment problem and there's a lot of poverty in Italy. And, you know, when it, you take it away from the, the Michelin starred restaurant and you're taking it to the hands of the dealers and the people who are literally digging the dirt to get these things. It's a very different story, isn't it? Yes. And that fascinated me. And I hadn't really anticipated that when I, I first started on this, this product that turns out like that, it, this product that ends up in the finest, most expensive restaurants and is generally only enjoyed by people who can afford to pay those bills starts off in a very different place. It's, it's a bunch of people and a bunch of dogs getting very dirty in um, parts of Italy, but also throughout Eastern Europe and, and now in other places as well, uh, who are finding these products in the wild forests. And then they're being traded uh, through networks that are dirty in a whole different way. Uh, until they finally sort of surface at the last stage uh, as this very fancy product. So that really fascinated me. Uh, and some other people have written about this, about how much um, they, they've sort of focused on crime and chicanery in the truffle business, where all of all of these these dealings, these this buying and selling happens uh, in an unregulated market that's either illegal or, you know, pseudo-legal. Um, and so they focused on the crime part of that. But what really struck me was that this was actually a really important economy to a lot of people who were completely invisible and under the radar, like the truffles themselves. And it has worked really well for a lot of those rural communities for a really long time. Yeah, absolutely. It's a hugely important part of of the communities, not just in in Italy either. You know, you do sort of talk about where they come from. They're from France and Spain, and you even talk about going to Australia as well. But your second food moment takes us to the UK, and I, I, I mean, I did know that you get truffles in in the UK. I nearly did a story on the truffle hounds of the UK a couple of years back, but I'd completely forgotten because it feels really not right, does it? Tell us about making contact with Zach Frost great name. (laughs) 
Yeah, so that's, you know, when you're a writer and you, you hit someone whose name is Zach Frost, you just like, thank the heavens. It's just like a little extra benefit that um, um, I, I, I found that I love uh, characters who have one syllable last names because it just makes the writing so much. If, if your character has a, a six syllable last name, it's just, it's just going to be awkward writing about them no matter what. Anyway, yeah, Zach Frost, how, how great. And he is a, an amazing uh, person and the UK's top truffle dealer, I would say. And he is really starting to trigger a whole transformation in how truffles are uh, perceived. And he did it because he was a total outsider. There have been um, networks of buyers and sellers in the truffle world forever, and the Italians sort of have established that thing. Um, and they sort of sell like the mystique of truffles and, and they claim they're all from Italy when we're talking about white truffles. Zach came to it as a complete outsider. Uh, he just um, discovered that there are these truffles in the UK in, in Wiltshire in Southern England. Uh, he was a friend of the landowners who had discovered these truffles on their property. And he just thought that was really fun. And, his dog sort of spontaneously trained itself to find them. He got lucky. He had a really smart black lab. Uh, so he started just selling to a few chef friends. He's always been interested in, in uh, cuisine. And then it just built from there. And suddenly he had a business on his hand selling these, these you know, dog-harvested Wiltshire truffles. And then people started asking him for other truffles in other seasons because the Wiltshire truffles, the one, and those truffles grow throughout uh, the UK, especially the southern part. Um, their season is pretty short. It's mostly September and October, a little bit of November. So then he started carrying other truffles, like the French black winter truffle, which starts to come online now, basically. And then uh, the Italian white truffle. And then a spring truffle as well. So suddenly he, he had a, a, a year-round business on his hands. But because he was an outsider, um, he didn't try to sort of, he didn't buy into the pretense that other truffle dealers um, had been um, employing for a long time, where they kind of thought that people wanted all these truffles to be from Italy and France. So that's what they're going to tell the chefs, that they're all from Italy and France. Um, that whole thing reinforced itself because the chefs also thought they only wanted truffles from France and Italy so everybody was doing sort of like unintentionally supporting this myth. But Zach was an outsider. So he found that his best suppliers of white truffles were coming from Hungary and Croatia. And that was just what he told the chefs. And the chefs were very skeptical at first, but he just had them, you know, try white truffles from Hungary and Croatia beside white truffles from Italy and show that, that there was no uh, difference in quality necessarily. And same thing for black truffles. He was sourcing them from Australia and Spain. And um, just by being open about the information, eventually was able to turn a lot of chefs. And the chefs began realizing that uh, they didn't need to hold on to this this old piece of misinformation anymore. Yeah. And now that's happening all over. Um, it's happening in the U.S. as well uh, and some other places. But it's still uh, in its infancy most people still believe the old myth. One of the reasons I wrote the book was to um, to try to... Dispel. Uh, yes. Yeah, because it's important for the industry 
uh, I mean, you alluded to crime, but it, it's important for everyone within the industry that it is diversified that, so that there's not this guns at dawn and poisoning and all the other horrible things that you do go into. <laughs> that there is, you know, less of a premium, perhaps, um, and more diversification. Is that right? I think that's where we're headed. And I think that's a good thing um, for, for the reasons you just pointed out. And it's also just more fun. Uh, I, I like to compare it to the wine world, where uh, at one point everyone thought Bordeaux and Burgundy was where you had to go for good wine. And now we know you can find good wine all over the place, made in all sorts of different ways. Uh, and the wine world has become much more interesting for it. Exactly. And I think that's where we're headed with travel. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great analogy to, to make. But then we do go in the third our food moment to Hungary. And this is where all the bad boys and the grandmasters in their robes and all the kind of the myth of the truffle. We are deep in mythical. I mean, I think we even go to Transylvania, don't you? Or you meet someone from Transylvania. It's wonderful, this chapter. Yeah, Hungary is where really all the, the sort of uh, elements of the story came together and are magnified in almost a cinematic way where I arrive and I meet with uh, this mycologist professor in Budapest uh, who is the head of the, the Hungarian Truffling Federation. And turns out he's actually the grand master of the Hungarian truffling yes. knights. Let's give and... him a proper name. <laughs> he's yeah. a knight, a truffle knight. A true truffle knight. And he broke out his, his shield and his robes and his medallions <laughs> to, to prove it to me. And uh, this is, so Hungary, they still have this culture, this sort of like almost like straight out of a Wes Anderson film culture of uh, <laughs> like, lots of uh, pomp and circumstance around truffles. This this happens in France, too, where they don robes and, and parade through town um, with their with their truffle uh, medallions. But they do that with their wines as well. That's true. <laughs> um, so it's like that old school European, um, like, uh, showmanship around this stuff. But at the same time, then I meet who is what is hung, Hungary's best uh, truffle hunter and possibly the best truffle hunter in the world, a guy named Istvan Bagi. And he is the opposite. He has no time for the truffle nights. He it just wants to be in the woods with his dog, and he's extremely modern about it. When he finds a uh, white truffle, and I found with, with uh, Istvan, one day we found uh, over two kilos of white truffles. So... A, a lot of money at current prices of, say, 4,000 euros a, a kilo. But um, yeah. Ishvan will snap a photo of that truffle and text these uh, buyers that he knows in London and Berlin and Tokyo and elsewhere and have that truffle sold within minutes of it coming out of the earth. Uh, and then he just has to get it to to DHL or FedEx and get it to them, which he'll do that night. Um, so he he is he's leap, leaping over that entire network of middlemen, and uh, that's that's brand new yeah. in the truffle world. You you became a truffle knight yourself. Well, I I'm working on it. I don't know. I got the medallion. So I you mentioned the Transylvanians. So <laughs> Transylvania is actually a, it might be some of the best. It's definitely some of the best uh, truffle hunting in the world. I I haven't gotten there yet. They everyone warned me don't go there unless you have a very good guide because it can be quite dangerous. But my my sense is that a lot of the world's white truffles are coming from Romania and especially that that Transylvania 
area. So when I was in Budapest, um, there were some Transylvanians there who were part of the business and were very unhappy about the way Hungary is regulating its part of the business, um, sort of controlling the forests where the truffles are found. Victor Orban um, selling off the forests to the oligarchs. Exactly, exactly. Um, oligarchs, both Hungarian and from Western Europe, yeah. basically the, the equivalent. Um, rights to, to, to access the forests have been bought up. And so if you want to go truffling these forests, you have to pay a, a huge amount of money to one of these uh, oligarchs who controls the forests mm. uh, or to the state, um, which has obvious, like, you know, in terms of equity, there are some clear issues. Uh, they would argue that it's actually pretty good for the forests to not have it be a free for all. Um, so it gets it gets pretty complicated when you get into it. But anyway, these Transylvanians were uh, not happy about it, and they wanted to tell me about it. So I got a mysterious phone call, and one I was in Budapest telling me to show up at a restaurant about an hour outside at a g- assigned time late that night, um, which I did. I didn't even know they were Transylvanians at the time. They were just uh, people connected to the truffle business. So I met them, and we had a late-night dinner, and they... Um, of testicle they, stew. Yes, uh, <laughs> cock and ball stew, basically. It was, uh, it was really tasty. That's, they told me it was the specialty, so I ordered it, and then everyone else got the fish soup. So I was, uh, I was left with the cock and balls stew on my own, but, but it, was, it was good. Um, but while while we were talking, yeah, they um, they have these these very cool little medallions, like bronze medallions with scenes of dogs and truffle hunters digging up truffles, and they they slid me one as kind of like a little like you know if you if you help us out, maybe you too will get one of these and be a truffle knight. So I'm trying, I'm working on my truffle knight status. But it was because they want you to tell the stories to the world because it's it's in their interests. You know, they are the hunter-gatherers, aren't they, really? They are practising an ancient tradition that actually works to keep the, the forests healthy and keeps the economy circular, doesn't it? I mean, that's that's what's so important about it. And I mentioned very briefly that there was poisoning of dogs and slashing of tyres. That is the reality of the truffle industry. And it's very important that people like you come and talk about that so that we as consumers of it have some kind of understanding. Is that how it works? Can you communicate to us as the the end users and that make an impact? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I like that you mentioned there are hunter-gatherers because in a sense, you can you can track like twenty thousand years of of human civilization as this process of the state pushing out the hunter gatherers um, from some of their traditional grounds, you know. So that that's you know been an issue and will always be an issue. It's interesting. There there are definitely reports that um, of dogs being poisoned in Italy and of people's tires getting slashed uh, in multiple places in Eastern Europe and even of. Um, some you know, I heard about an incident in Romania where somebody got a finger cut off. That kind of happens with any any sort of industry that's um, unregulated. And the nature of the truffles is because they're found in wild forests, they're sort of outside of the traditional rule of the law a lot of the time. Uh, so, but often what happens with those types of um, wild harvest uh, e- economies is that the group will police itself like once it achieves a certain amount of stability for instance in the united states uh lobstering works very much the same way uh in maine where um 
you know, you're out there. Anyone can lobster anywhere in theory, but through uh, a couple centuries of tradition, spots have been inherited through families um, or or through other uh, systems where basically everyone polices each other and it works as long as you're part of the system. And when people try to like come into that system and take a spot without being a part of it, that's when, you know, suddenly they find their boat sunk at the harbor the next morning or something like that. So truffles reminded me of that. Um, so definitely thing, bad things can happen in that sort of unregulated um, environment. And the the um, the lack of sunlight that's been shown on the truffle world has not helped the situation. So I, again, I think we're moving to a more transparent system, hopefully, where um, people who are using responsible techniques, both socially responsible and environmentally responsible, uh, will be rewarded in the marketplace, hopefully. So, and and that means using dogs because in some places truffles can be dug with rakes, which is really bad for the um, ecology. So, um, an insistence on dog harvested truffles and on you know, basically like <laughs> general, don't, don't cut your neighbor's finger off that, you know, that should be the minimum, I think. <laughs> so those are the two questions to ask your chef. Is it dog harvested <laughs> and are there any fingers involved? <laughs> yeah, it's a good place to start. Um, the, your fourth food moment takes it home. Um, it's This is the native truffles. This is bringing truffles to America. And it's the culmination of your investigation in that it's a fairly new industry in America, isn't it? And with that, all the, all your all the stuff that you find about these very ancient traditions, truffles have been around for a very very long time in Europe. Where they come to America, can it be like a blank canvas? Can can you start again with better ethics and better working practices and better understanding? That's what excites me about the the situation in in America. It sort of very typically, the U.S. has a lot of catching up to do when it comes to truffle culture. We're way behind Europe. Uh, and we're starting on that process now. But so just in terms of general appreciation of truffles, we have a lot of catching up to do. But we also haven't adopted a lot of the bad habits yet that um, sort of spun out from those French and Italian systems. So my hope is that we're, we get to skip the bad habits. We get to, to learn the cultural appreciation part uh, without um, quite incorporating the the like stuffy hierarchical systems that they love in France and, and elsewhere. Um, and it can be much more sort of grassroots and, and less a product purely for the very well off. Yeah. Having said that, you do make the parallel again with wine. You know, could truffle ever be an every man and every woman experience? W- wouldn't it just lose its shtick? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I've thinking about that and i don't quite have the answer yet this is something that anyone can find in the woods if they have a dog trained to do that and anyone can train their dog to do that so opportunity to access truffles is right there um and it's fun so i i definitely see a lot more truffle dogs including yours Lovely Friday the Cockapoo. Friday. Tell us how you trained your own dog, your 10-year-old Cockapoo, to go and find a truffle. Right. Well, do as I say, not as I do. Friday's sleeping on right here next to me, <laughs> and he's, he's got no interest in truffle hunting, it turns out. We, um, he, he, he really enjoyed truffle hunting in the yard when I um, would bury a, a truffle and, 
you know, he would very easily find it. Um, but he's he's now 11 and he's pretty, uh, pretty creaky these days. So when we forayed out into the woods, he was uh, he was about 15 minutes into it. And he'd just be like, can I just go home now? You know, this is this is great. But finding travels in the yard is much better. But I'm working on another um, another couple of friends dogs that are looking very promising. <laughs> Excellent. And, you know, one of, one of the things I really love most about the book is this the the relationship between man and dog and it is mainly men and and dogs um the amount of time they're spending together but then you you come across this right at the end this idea that actually dogs have got it sussed the smellscape they live in is something that we humans miss you say and you say truffles are the street artists of the forest splashing smells across an airy canvas blowing the minds of passers-by and I love the idea that all our, our furry friends are having this amazing experience of life that we can't quite grasp until a truffle comes our way. And you've really brought it full circle from the beginning of our conversation with that moment in Barolo where I smell that truffle and my reaction to that smell experience is really strong, but I can't quite, I don't know what to do with it yet. Um, and I think my teachers in what to do with that type of thing have been dogs, the dogs that I ended up following because they know exactly what to do when they smell fascinating things. You know, they, they'll spend hours tracking them and they'll, they'll enjoy the, um, the experience. Uh, to me, what I thought uh, as you were quoting is that it's almost like the way we enjoy an artistic uh, expression. Like you savor it and you don't need to explain necessarily in, in any sort of logical way why it has an impression on you. You can just enjoy it for what it is. And I see dogs doing that with smells all the time. Yeah, they have access to these stories under our feet. And that's what you say, the, the mycelium, they, they spread everywhere under our feet that we don't, we don't see them. Um, and the dogs are communicating with this other world. Um, the truffles just below the earth with so much to say. Do you walk across the earth in a different way now that you've had this extraordinary experience? I do, absolutely. And the dogs, they're really the, uh, they're the mediums that are the, helping us communicate with this world that we're not great at communicating with because our sniffers are just not so good. But um, they help us make that connection. And once you've made it, you do see the world differently. And I think that is something we're going to see in all kinds of different ways, not just in truffles, but this appreciation for these mycorrhizal networks is really growing. I noticed that there's a um, a big push right now by several different um, nonprofit organizations to to get people, more people to pay attention because it, it turns out that about a third of the carbon uh, sequestration in the world is happening through these fungal networks rather than through trees. Uh, or other plants. So they turn out to be hugely important for for fighting global warming. Truffles to sharpen our senses and save the world. Can that be the case? Yes. Well, they, they do sharpen our senses. And I think if if we can really, truly pay attention to the wisdom of this very basic primary sense of ours, it's a different way of, of responding to the world and it really deepens our, our instincts in a way that I think could actually be uh, very fruitful. 
Thanks for listening. You can buy all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the podcast show notes or on the bookshop tab at jillysmith.com. And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my Supper Club news. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you next week when I'm with Turkish Cypriot chef and author of three, Selin Kiazi. Thank you.